Welcome to the Inside Data Center podcast. I'm Andy Davis, and in this podcast, I will interview the people working in the data center sector and tell their stories. If you are working in the DC sector or you are looking to work in the sector, then this is a podcast for you. Welcome to the Inside Data Center podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tony Grayson, General Manager at Compass Quantum, based over in the US. Good morning for you, Tony. Hey, good morning, Andy. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Great to have you on. Really looking forward to obviously learning more about your career, also about Compass Quantum and, and discussing the topic we all love, edge data centers and trying to work out what it actually means. <laughs> but before we go into that uh, rabbit hole, do you want to just give everyone a quick introduction of who you are and what you do at Compass Quantum? Yeah, so I, you know, I had a very, very different path to technology than most people. I actually spent uh, 21 years in the U.S. Navy you know, my life's goal was to command my own submarine, and I did that. But, you know, during those four years when I was in command, I was probably out to see 80% of my time, and I missed a lot of my kid's life up to that point. So, you know, I decided that, you know, get out after 21 years and was fortunate enough to be uh, work out at Facebook um, and was doing kind of ISP, OSP design and operations and some networking stuff there. But, uh, you know, the barrier was just too expensive for someone just out of the Navy. So I ended up, we ended up moving up to Bainbridge Island, just west of Seattle, because we had lived here twice during our Navy, you know, during our Navy career. And, and I was flying the Nerdbird down. So the Nerdbird is, you know, for those that don't know, it's a flight that leaves on Monday morning, comes back on Thursday night for people that uh, live in other areas to go back to the Bay Area. So it's not necessarily assigned seats on Alaska flight that leaves at, you know, 6 a.m., but it is assigned seats and you have your best friends going down and, and coming back. But did that for about six or seven months. But, you know, once again, that's why I left the aid was to spend more time with my family. So, you know, from then I worked at AWS and really liked working there and then was fortunate enough to work at Oracle and, and kind of did Oracle, the physical infrastructure for the OCI cloud. But, you know, about a year ago, I was talking to, you know, Robin Kunda. He had just kind of sold Air Trunk and I was kind of talking about how he got there. And then I was talking to Randy from Edge Connects and Brian from Stack and, you know, Surreal from Vantage and of course, Chris Crosby from Compass. And I'm like, wow, man, I this side of the business sounds super, super fascinating. You know, we saw like say we weren't doing cool things at Oracle, but I, I kind of, really like that that product side and be able to build that product side. So, you know, it's just looking around and Chris Crosby said, you know, we own two businesses. One is this Radix business, which is DCA and BMS. And we have this business called EdgePoint, which is these kind of modular data centers. And I and I had been looking at these modular data centers because Oracle has these dedicated regions um, where they come and deliver a region just for you on-prem. And so I was thinking, you know, how can I stick one of these in a modular data center? And so now you only get the hardware, you get the data center too. And so I was like, well, that sounds pretty cool. And so, you know, I kind of did what I wanted to at, at Oracle and and then moved over here to uh, Compass. And that's what we're focused on is really that modular data center. We're calling it white space as a service. You know, it's building a data center anywhere where people want all under monthly bills. So it's an OPEX kind of play, but it's turnkey. We take care of everything. And there we are today. I wanted to touch on your military background or you know your naval background because yeah. it's something that comes up quite regularly. And there's some so many people that come from the forces background. And there's particularly a lot of people that come from a submariner background. So yeah. I just wanted to touch on that. Why do you think it is that so many people from your background are successful in the data center sector? You know, I think there's there's two things, you know, 
on my submarine, I probably had, I think it's like 13 megawatts of IT load. So we, we had a substrate, we had an overlay, we had UIs, we used to call them those things. Um, so I think the first thing is we kind of knew a lot more about a cloud or a platform than, than kind of we thought until we actually got out into the sector. Um, you know, and I think at least on the nuclear side, um, you know, it's mission critical operations. There's no different, you know, that uh, availability is probably even higher on the nines, but there's no different than that than, than running a data center. We're all taught mechanical, we're all taught electrical, we're taught how to do mops, sops, you know, follow procedures, you kind of name it, walk around, look for things out of place. So it's it's a natural kind of fit for those people who grew up doing that for for 20 something years. And to be honest, I think it's going to become even more critical as we start building more and more data centers and need to staff more and more data centers and more people are retiring. I think it's a it will provide a steady slight pipeline of, of great candidates kind of into the data center segment. But I do think it's kind of something you got to balance though, because what you don't want is 75% nuke and 25% not nuke because it's gonna be it's gonna make it. I think you know nukes have a lot to learn too. Be completely honest, and I think you know companies need to take a chance with them, but also balance them out with industry people who kind of grew up with it. Yeah, definitely. And do you think that people in that sector or from that background actually have an understanding that there is a career in the data center sector once they've left the military? No, I mean, I think it, I think we have to do a better job evangelizing that because I don't think they get it. Like most people, you know, they're a a senior enlisted and they're, you know, or they're an officer and they've been kind of as a manager forever. So they kind of see the manager equate success. And I don't think that's really true. I think you can be super successful as a senior individual contributor or a shift leader or something like that. And, but we need to do a better job of really talking to them and, and really kind of explaining how the civilian world works. And I, I've been trying to do that with my own kind of video series and we're just starting something new with Compass. Um, it doesn't really have a catchy name yet. It's just transition tips with Tony Grace. And I don't, <laughs> I'm not the greatest marketing genius, but uh, it's, I, I do think we need to do a better job of, of talking to them about that and, and getting them in and, and getting their, you know, feet wet because then they can, then they can go into program management. They can go into financial, they can go into whatever they want, but I, they have to have the basic understanding of, you know, kind of the economics, the operations, the engineering of the data center, and then they can kind of do a myriad of things. Yeah, and I think it's really important that we create role models such as yourself as well and other people that have come from that background so we can say, look, here is somebody that has done it, been there, seen it, and been successful. Because then it's it's much easier then to understand where you can take your career. Yeah, and I think we also need to do a better job of reaching out to, I mean, we're definitely great with the U.S. Navy, but... You know, I've served time on a UK submarine before, you know, that's where I found out what PIMS actually is. Um, and so I do think, you know, we need to do a better job of reaching out to other communities. And it doesn't necessarily have to be submarines. I think, you know, any kind of military comes with that same kind of attitude where they do those kind of procedures. And we need to figure out how to engage with them and bring them on um, and, and to get them into our industry. And so not just limit it to the US, which I think we have a tendency to do sometimes. Uh, great point. And it's a lovely day for PIMS in the UK today, actually. The sun's shining. It's 25 degrees, which is uh, a very hot day for us uh, in the south coast of England. Yeah. So in Seattle, we're still suffering from what they're calling. Well, you probably understand what it, this is like in England, but we're still suffering from January out here in Seattle. So it's like 60 and rainy. So we haven't really we haven't really gotten to the spring. <laughs> 
No, exactly. Um, and obviously, going back to the data centre sector, you, you've spent quite a number of years in the sector and obviously, as I say, developed you know, a successful career. What do you think have been the main changes that you've noticed across your career? I think, you know, I, I think that the main changes are kind of the scale aspect of it. Um, you know, before it was, you know, we're just going to build one or two data centres. Now, people are building a lot more than that. And so I think, you know, where cost used to be, I mean, cost is always a driver, but I think every what trumps everything now is time to market. You know, I think people are selling data centers before even a shovel breaks the ground. So that time to market, managing that supply chain is key. I also love the way people are coming together to work on common topics. I think people have hidden behind the IP stuff. And, you know, it's, you, know, you and I talk before the thing, it's, it's four walls and a roof with some kind of mechanical pooling and some kind of electrical distribution. It's not a lot of IP in there. So I do think we can come together and, and work on topics that are, are critical, like sustainability. And that's where we like the kind of the iMasons climate accords are doing. I think that's 155 companies coming together to work on a common set of problems on a common set of kit to try to solve this kind of stuff, I think will be, um, I think will be key. And I, so I think that kind of focus on sustainability and, and coming together and working together as a, as a larger team, I think is interesting. But I do think the biggest change I still think is coming, which is really, you know, there's the on-prem and then there's cloud and there's something else. So what's the something else? How do we serve that something else? And, and how do we make it easier for, the software people, you know, HPC, GPU, all these kind of companies coming out with these different kind of platforms or networks. Yeah, the collaboration is a great point because I've found over the last 12 months, there's been a number of different collaborative platforms, like you say, like the iMasons, and there's, there's a few in the UK and Europe as well that are, that are really getting everybody together, kind of getting everyone in a room, so to speak, and trying to solve these problems, which is the only way I think we can do it, really. No, I agree. And there is some special sauce. I get that with the IP stuff. I mean, there's cool things people are doing with microgrids and BESTS and, and, and kind of, you know, with Microsoft announcing yesterday with kind of what they're doing with the um, kind of the, 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 the sorry, the natural gas based generators and that kind of stuff. I do think there's some, there's some IP stuff out there, but it doesn't necessarily need to be, I think. There's more than enough business to go around from everyone with the kind of the hyperscale market. Um, but I, I do think that's the biggest change, I would say. Uh, definitely. Yeah, I agree with you as well. And obviously, going back to Compass Quantum, you touched on it briefly earlier, kind of what, what you do and, and how you position yourself. But do you just want to give a brief outline of Compass Quantum and obviously and how you tie into the Compass data centers as well? Yeah. And so, you know, I think there's plenty of wholesale module builders that will build a great unit for you. You know, Salonair, Vertif, Schneider, um, you know, there's more of them out there that will do this for you. But, you know, what we're trying to really, I mean, our module design is unique and interesting. We can talk about that. But I think, you know, there's this other part of this thing that needs this, you know, kind of ecosystem needs to happen. So I really wanted to focus on a turnkey OPEX solution for customers. So, you know, we'll find the land, lease it and buy it. We'll manufacture, we'll deliver it, we'll install it and we'll run it all under an OPEX model. So sign a five or seven year lease, buy it fair market value at the end of it or sign up for another one or, you know, say no and we'll take it away. Um, I think no one's really in this sector trying to do that because I think it's, it's complicated and you can't use traditional kind of data center lessons learned to do it because imagine going to a site selection team and saying, hey, I have a customer 
that wants 432 sites across the United States that need to be 2,000 square feet, need to have three-phase, two-weight volts, and needs to have fiber within a quarter mile of it so you can bring it in. And I need that in the next two months and that we're not set up for that. So I think we have to build this other ecosystem that enables us to be able to find small plots of land to lease or buy to deploy what the future of infrastructure is, which I really do think is is we're going to have small data centers everywhere to support the upcoming edge or platforms or anything you want to say about it. And so that's kind of what the model that we're focused on is. And from a land perspective, obviously, we're seeing more and more challenges to to identify land, particularly, I know in the States, it's slightly different because you have a lot more land. But do you think this is part of the solution to that challenge? I mean, I think it's, it's part of the solution because I think at this small scale, I don't think it's tough to find land. I mean, I think there's plenty of people with excess parking spots. I think there's plenty of people that are office buildings that are having problems selling real estate because everyone's doing these, you know, that Zoom thing now uh, or WebEx or, you know, Microsoft Teams or that kind of stuff. And so there's a lot more ability to kind of get in there and, and drop, you know, kind of a mo- one of these small modules on land and give yourself that kind of remote and network or, you know, compute capability with a platform. So I do think it could be a solution for, some of these. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to say all the hyperscale is going to come to it. I just think it's going to be a mixture going into the future of how they want to deploy their infrastructure. I mean, there's, you can't get away from, you know, the benefits of congregating a bunch of servers in one location. I mean, that's where the main stuff's going to be, but they have all this other stuff on IoT, you know, gaming platforms, kind of SD-WAN, IXPs, and I could run down a list on it. Um, that are going to require something kind of different and they don't want to go on that retailer colo site. Yeah, and it kind of brings us on to the million dollar question or probably billion dollar question, which is one that the sector talks about all the time. And Edge, as a as a general term, no one really knows or has a definition of it, which we, again, we've talked about before. But from your perspective, what is Edge? Yeah, I think, to be honest, I'm going to do something unique and I'm going to say, uh, I think everyone's right. Because I think, you know, everyone is trying to build a separate, you know, widget that helps serve customers. And I think that widget's going to require something different from that customer, whether it's a distance, a latency, a network bandwidth kind of issue. Um, so I think all those definitions are right. Uh, you know, IoT is going to require something different than a smart city, which would require different than an IXP kind of go, that backhauls to a carrier hotel which is going to acquire something different from an AI kind of service, which is going to acquire something different, you know, from, you know, kind of a, a virtualized compute for enterprise. I mean, they all require something different. And I think everyone's trying to shoehorn their own platform into a definition of edge. And to be honest, they're all right. And so we should see, accept that there's on-prem, there's cloud, and then there's this massive piece of in-between. And maybe that's just the edge. No, yeah, exactly. And, and again, we, we've talked about earlier, I don't think, I agree with you, and I don't think it's wrong that we all have a different definition. We kind of, we all know vaguely what it is and, and, and how it's going to, you know, help manage some of the challenges. But do we need an exact definition yet? I don't think we do. But from your perspective as well, why is Edge so important? And why do we need Edge? Because I think, you know, the, the future is going to drive up a lot of bandwidth. I mean, your phone, your refrigerator, all these things are going to generate a lot more data. And they're going to have to require some form of latency or some closer computing. I think there's, you know, there's other cool platforms out there right now that like stadiums that look at all these cameras 
that tell you what, you know, where's the line to the, the bathroom or the head, you know, using my Navy terms are, or, you know, if you want to get a pint where the closest pint is, you can't do that going back to the cloud because, you know, if the latency will kill you, then, it, you know, egress, ingress, network fees will kill you. You have to do this stuff on premises and there's, you know, security concerns. There's, you know, still Gaia X concerns of, of, you know, data leaving national borders. And so you have a mixture of this kind of stuff that will force people to kind of develop these kind of more more uh, solutions that are closer to the customer. And one point that I think a few other people have made is the ability for it to help remote locations, those remote geographies that, you know, there's still a mass of the population that have no access to the internet, but these areas will need some kind of edge facility in order to connect. No, 100% agree. And I think, you know, the way we're solving the states is a lot of government funds that are out there, you know, that are starting to be levied by the states and, and you know, given to companies to build these platforms. And what they're essentially doing is building not an internet exchange, but an internet exchange point where they, they go down to a rural area, they kind of build this, you know, they get a telcos in and they backhaul to, you know, one of these on-ramps that are out there. Um, and then they, you know, once they get a certain amount of customers that are using that, they bring the CDNs in. And so I do think there's definitely a massive push right now, at least in the States, to push that. Because I think we're a little, we're definitely a little bit behind, you know, Europe and APAC with some of those fiber routes and everything um, to be able to provide that. But I do think, you know, it's kind of the, the bleeding edge, I hate to say it like that, but of, of you know, that's what the, that's what the edge is going to need. It's these networks to provide these backhaul capabilities to these internet exchange peering points. Um, to enable that kind of stuff. Because I, I 100% agree. I mean, it's amazing. I was absolutely amazed, at least here in the States, that some of these rural areas, how much they're paying for broadband. It's 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 almost criminal for like these schools and stuff like that. I mean, it's it makes it super tough to, you know, to teach when you're you're used to, you know, kind of doing a lot of this stuff over the over video now. Yeah, and I was chatting to someone in Australia who said that if the you know if the mobile network goes down, there's no way of communicating. Which to us seems crazy because you know we live in in England. Obviously, everything's fairly close together, but we live in towns. We can walk out the door and you know, walk out the road. But you forget about these really remote locations where they're so reliant on that communication. You know, how do you phone an ambulance if your phone's gone down? It's that type of conversation. Yeah, and I do think I, I mean I do think the good thing is there. I mean, we're definitely going to have these terrestrial fiber networks, but I do think there will be a relief between you know Bezos and, and Elon with their satellite companies. I mean, look what everything they've done. They have the money to do it. They definitely have the fortitude to do it. And so if they say they're going to put up 50,000 satellites, they probably will. Um, and they're not your traditional satellites. You know, I was using, you know, if you go back in the day, I was using satellite dishes in the middle of the Atlantic and Pacific, and I got 512K, and this is in the 90s. So um, I think they could do a lot more with that kind of stuff right now. Um, and I think that could also alleviate some of this kind of stuff too. Yeah, definitely. And lastly, on edge, I think one of the challenges that a few people ask me is like, how do we make it scalable? How does it become you know, a mass market solution? Do you have any views on how it's going to get to that point? Yeah, I think it can't be bespoke. I think, you know, you can't go in and say, well, I want something like this, but I want to pick my own kit that goes in it. I mean, I think there's there's a certain kit that you can pick and a certain kind of you know mass customization where you can do it. But if you go too crazy, you'll break the system and your your module will go two or three X the price of it needs to be. And so I think it's, you have to stay within a certain, you know, kind of that, you know, kind of length, width and height to make it super simple to ship. 
but you have a, a kit of parts that you should be able to select, but you should have the same kind of, you know, kind of mechanical electrical should be kind of standardized on it. So you can actually build this stuff in volume because it really is when it comes to manu- these modules, it's a, it's a manufacturing problem. It's not a construction problem. And so you have to think super differently. Like what we're doing with ours is, you know, we're really focused on, you know, how do we minimize the amount of welding? How do we, how do we do a bunch of bolts, which, you know, I can get less skilled labor in there. I can do it faster. You know, I kind of build everything without the walls first and put the walls on afterwards to make it simpler. I think we have to think different. We, you can't think like a data, you're building a data center. You have to think like you're building a car. And so, you know, how do you build the car to make it super simple and, and still keep the quality up? Um, and I think that's the way we need to kind of approach. How do you mass produce this edge? Because that's what it's going to come, come up being is, you know, let's just, you know, one customer can easily take a thousand units. So how do you, how do you deliver 10x that, 100x that you have to produce like cars? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And obviously that brings on to sustainability as well and how Edge can obviously help that. I know Compass are really, really focused on sustainability and you mentioned obviously the iMasons Accord earlier, but from an Edge perspective, how do you think it helps manage that sustainability challenge? Yeah, I think Edge is unique because you're typically deploying in 100 kilowatt increments. And so you have all these things that are not, like if I'm deploying a 40 megawatt data center, if I want to try a you know kind of a battery system, or a microgrid, it's incredibly expensive and incredibly risky. But if I'm doing a, a hundred kilowatt system, like I have the ability to do work with PEM fuel cells, solid oxide fuel cells for you know kind of base load, microgrids for base load. You know, you have a lot more ability to do things um, that are cheaper that you can consider kind of R and D aspect of it. And so I do think you know the edge allows us a great way under real world conditions to deploy some of this kind of stuff and see what works and not works but i i do think at least you know the way we thought about it is is we wanted to do something different than you know kind of a concrete and a steel which have i mean you could do a carbon capture and stuff and you can do kind of you know recycled steel but it's still not the best and so we kind of went with a composite on the outside of ours i mean it's just it's, I think it's one tenth the amount of energy to make than you know steel is, and one has one third the embedded carbon. And I think we have to start looking at other different forms that the regular construction industry is looking at, or manufacturing industry is looking at, um, to be able to kind of find sustainable solutions. Because you know, if we're really deploying these in the tens of thousands, we need to figure this out now before we put a bunch of you know carbon, massive carbon structures all around the world to to try to facilitate with the edges. Yeah, and I was reading on your website about, on Compass's website, about the concrete use in the construction phase. And I know that's something that as an organization, you've looked at quite closely. And I know this is not specifically to edge, but sort of general. How can we reduce the carbon used in that phase? You know, I think, you know, for what we have done, at least with quantum is I like, I don't, I don't deploy on concrete pads. You know, we're using peers. I mean, there's a benefit to that where the, you know, the peers give me a much quicker time to market. There's no geotech, you know, I can, I can really deploy with any land grading without having to do any kind of land grading. And then when I take, and I don't affect the environment. So when I take it away, it's like, it's almost not there. Um, so that's kind of what we've looked at it from the pad aspect of it, but from, you know, kind of the actual structure aspect, we really try to minimize the amount of carbon footprint that's going into it. You know, in my ideal world, you know, I think it's much easier for me to figure out my scope one, two, and three emissions for one of these modules. And I should be able to give that to the customer when they buy it. So they know that when they deploy a hundred of these units, this is the carbon footprint that they're 
in going because I think it's it's much harder to do when your bomb is hundreds and hundreds of thousands. But if you're doing these mic, you know, the kind of modular data centers, micro data centers, whatever you want to call it, your bomb is not that big. I mean, they're not. I mean, they're not really. They're kind of simple in their design and elegance for that, and they need to be because they're in the middle of nowhere, and you don't want something that's complex in the middle of nowhere where you have to get the you know the local plumber who also serves an electrician who's also the sheriff to come fix your HVAC system. You want to make it super simple. So I think you know the edge in what we're doing offers a a very unique way to try out you know kind of these carbon accounting, carbon capture, carbon you know you name it solutions out there at a low cost and a low risk for these for customers. Yeah, and another point that comes up quite regularly is about how the customers are now driving it as well. It's really important to them what the carbon output is, the sustainability message that you're putting across to them as well. I think that's changed the game a little bit, hasn't it? No, I would agree. And so, you know, the one thing I saw on my, on my side as a buyer, it's almost like, well, you know, as a provider, you're afraid to risk something because your customer may not like it. And you're trying to go after all these kind of the platform customers. So it's like, do I do this? You know, they may not buy it. And so, you know, I mean, as a buyer, I'm like, I didn't know what the realm of possible is, you know, what, what kind of cool things you're doing out there. So it's like, you know, who's going to go first, you know, with this kind of stuff. And I think if you're an owner builder, you know, kind of like, you know, AWS or Azure, you kind of have that capability where you can try out technology, but as a as not an older builder, as a supplier, everyone kind of just stares at each other going, you know, what technology do you want me to look at? You know, what technology can you do? And so I think, you know, I, th- I see that really changing now. So where it's, you see the, you know, the kind of the buyers are actually asking for this kind of stuff, you know, kind of, because they all have sustainability goals in 2030, 2050, that kind of stuff. And so they have to kind of, you know, they're going to be, they're going to be doing these contracts for 30 plus years. So they have to kind of think now, what they're what they're going into it with because that's going to definitely affect their 2050 goals yeah exactly that and another point another topic i wanted to talk to you about is talent i know we touched on it briefly earlier from the the naval perspective the submariner perspective but i'm just interested to hear your views it's obviously a topic i talk about all the time and something that comes up every time we do this podcast about talent shortage and not being enough people what are your views in general and how can we attract more people and also retain people in the sector yeah, I think we, you know, I think the data center community um, kind of, I think we have to look at ourselves differently. I think we have to kind of, you know, offer opportunity to take people in and teach them the ropes to kind of expand, you know, kind of what our, you know, ideally want someone that's 20 years experience coming in to be the shift leader who does this, but, you know, maybe it's 10 years of experience and they have, you know, they kind of like an apprenticeship qualification program where you teach them and then, you know, and then you continually, you know, kind of certify them to make sure they're still performing. I think we have to, we can't just, you can't just say, I need to find someone with 10 years of experience. How are you going to give them that training? I think we need to really kind of look at the pipelines. I think we need to open up our aperture a little bit to kind of look at these other kind of, um, you know, possibly ways to get people in like, you know, kind of veterans and even people who are, have already been out in the industry that were veterans. Um, to try to get them in the industry. I think, you know, the apprenticeships, the journeymen's, that kind of stuff to kind of get them in. But I think we might have to start carrying a little more headcount on these data centers, even though we're trying to minimize it to be able to provide that capability to teach that person, you know, kind of how to do it and how to be successful at it. But I also think there's other cool things that are out there going right now, at least in the, you know, in the US where they're offering kind of those kind of courses where they actually you know, teach you to be a, a, you know, a data center manager, if you will, there's actually degrees on that kind of stuff. And I think we need to 
get more people understand that this is a, you know, a no kidding career that you can actually do. It's no different than running a nuclear reactor. It's just you're running a data center. And so let's get people pipelines and, and kind of apprenticeships and journeyman. How do you preach, how you can get that people in there. But I also think we need to do a better job of evangelizing it too, you know, getting out there. You know, we tend to talk a lot, but it's all, it's like you and me. And so we all kind of get it. We need to get out there and, and, you know, kind of go talk to colleges, go talk to trade schools and evangelize a little bit better of how about how this industry is and, and how big it's going to be. Uh, there's a lot of great points in there. And I think uh, a key point that I've said before is we talk a lot amongst ourselves, which is exactly where you're going with it. It's kind of, we, we tell each other how great it is and how we need to get more people, but we need to be telling the people that we want in the sector, how great it is, not, not each other. Yeah. And I think we need to get, like I said, we'd be giving them the training to be successful. You can't just sit there and say, well, come, you know, come to my sector, but you have to be fully trained before I hire you. No, it's, you got to have a pipeline to be able to train people. And and then, you know, once you train them that you keep the certifications on there, it's not like they're trained, they graduate, and then they're going to be awesome. No, they're going to have to acquire continual training and steps and, and clear paths for to be the, you know, the highest level, you got to have to transition pass. It can't just be coming as a tech and you're going to be a tech for the next 20 years. No one's going to be excited about that. You know, how do you get to be a manager? How do you get to be a director? How do you get to be, yeah, we have to have these clear pipelines for people. And it's a really interesting point you make as well about training, because it is hard to get training in a sector like data centers where there's not many live data centers kicking around where you can just go and spend a couple of days and learn learn the rope. So it's a great point that you make about maybe we do have to take a risk and we do have to have two or three more engineers in the facility than we need to train them for six months, knowing that that's going to solve the long-term problem. Exactly. And, and, and then once they graduate with that training, you know, how do you train them for that next step? You know, people want to know they have a path to more responsibility, most people and in, in growth. So how do we, how do we keep certifying them to make sure that they're trained and performing at the top you know, top percentage, but you know, how to give them that path to be, you know, greater and greater as they expand in their, in their career or that kind of stuff. We don't want them to sit there and say, I'm going to be a, I'm doing smart hands my whole life. That's not going to get a lot of people into our industry. I agree. Totally agree. And another question that I've been asking everyone this year is just kind of their views over the next 12 months. It was their views in 2022, but we're halfway through 2022 now. So do you, how do you see the industry changing over the next 12 months? I mean, I, I think it's still growing like crazy right now. I, I think you will start, I mean, time to market, I think right now is key. And so I think you will start seeing more platform really come to the data center provider industry. And if you own the land, that's what's going to be the, the gateway for you. They're going to sit there and say, I'm going to be in, you know, Milan, Madrid, you know, Warsaw, and, and, and who has the land there. And that's really going to drive the data center industry. I think they would love to still continue to build themselves, but you know, they aren't set up to buy land and, and do this stuff at scale. So I think it's going to, you're going to start seeing more like it is right now, more providers kind of building in that aspect for it. But I will think, I really do think, you know, we're looking at a couple of concepts now on edge. I do think you're going to start to see more of this edge um, start to start to pop up. And as people try to solve it and deploy their platform out into it. So, you know, I'm not sure if COVID held it back for a bit, but it, I, I'm starting to see kind of the, the front ends of, of what that edge could be and the customers that are trying to develop the products for it. From there, with Edge, where do you think we'll start to see it? What kind of locations, obviously not specific locations, but what type of areas do you think we'll see it first? Yeah, I think, you know, we're seeing it a couple areas and it's 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 not all what you think. I mean, the first one is definitely the network side. So it's 
you know, I need to get networks out to rural areas. What's the best way to do that? It's with a small data center and a backhaul to some, you know, peering entry internet point. I think, you know, we're starting to build more networks, more fiber networks right now. And so the traditional four rack ILA hut can now be an eight rack ILA hut because now I have four more racks for CDNs when I drop, you know, kind of the, the optical kind of geared to, you know, to boost the signal. So I'm starting to see this whole thing as kind of the network kind of build out for the kind of the edge that needs to happen. Um, I'm starting to see kind of, you know, there's a lot of older enterprise telco out there right now that are two to three kilowatts. And they're trying to get to these X9, E4 kind of Intel and AMD solutions or even HPC or GPU. Um, and they need more dense racks. And so it's incredibly cost. I mean, it's cost prohibitive sometimes to modernize a data center and you also risk your existing business. So I, I'm starting to see people kind of say, well, can I, can I take a micro data center and drop it next door and then long line everything from your, your MPO, your main point of entry into the data center. Now you have a modern data center that's fully managed and you can turn that other data, you know, kind of that older data center and migrate over in less risk of business than it's cheaper. So we're starting to see that kind of modernization thing happen. We're starting to see um, you kind of this new push on media entertainment too, where, you know, it's this whole concept of data gravity where, you know, you put your compute where the data is instead of trying to push the data to where the compute is. And we're starting to see, you know, kind of the financial, ooh, this is really kind of expensive on the network side. How about we actually bring the compute to where we're kind of going right now? So we're starting to see this kind of media entertainment stuff. And then, you know, kind of the last side is, is this push towards AI. I mean, AI does not require a lot of racks, but they're dense racks. And so, you know, if I have a hospital that wants to use an AI to look at old MRI data, you know, it, it's, it's, they don't want to back, you know, they don't want to go to the local kind of cloud provider for that. They want kind of that on-prem solution, which is, you know, you deploy HPC in the back and then, you know, they take advantage of the HPC for that. So they need to have a container for that kind of stuff. So those are kind of where I'm seeing right at the edge. And then there's also, you know, kind of all this companies that are trying to do, you know, kind of virtualized compute that is not at the core site and, it, and it's not the on-prem, but it's not, you know, kind of on the cloud and it needs to be because of pl some platform somewhere between we're starting to see that, you know, how, what that compute kind of is. So those are kind of what I'm seeing right now that are happening. That's uh, fascinating. So I think people don't really understand, as we said earlier, we won't talk about it again because we talk all day, but how the edge solves these problems. I think it's really important to try and paint that picture of why we need it. Not, you know, we've already talked about what it is, but why is really important to get the message out there, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, I, there will be platforms that require latency to the end customer. There will be platforms that require a certain throughput or storage from that customer. You know, once we go to true 5G, my phone is going to generate a heck of a lot of data. Where does that data go? It, it, you don't want to send all the way to the cloud. That's It's going to clog the network bandwidth all the way in there. So it's going to have to be stored and, and executed from some local service. People will build platforms for that. And so, you know, I, I do think as we go from, you know, 5G, 6G, or, and all these other kind of consumers that generate all this, and this is the whole thing of the data gravity, push the stuff more to where the data is instead of trying to push the data through small pipes to where, you know, kind of that computing stuff is. I think we'll start to see more of that and more platforms built on that kind of stuff. I mean, like, do you want do you want your Tesla, if you're driving a Tesla, to go back and you're in California, do you want it to go back to an Ashburn data center? If there's like a, a pothole right in front of you, no, you want some local, you know, kind of AI looking at that saying, well, Andy, you got a pothole in a quarter mile. You might want to get on the other lane 
you know, it's so you have this kind of stuff that needs to happen in more real time where it's definitely latency sensitive. Yeah, and if you're driving in England, there's potholes all the time, so you need you need that close to close to source. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of a funny story. You know, we we uh, we it was time to get a new car, and we're driving it home from Seattle, and then uh, of course we hit a pothole at fifty, and so there's you know five miles in the car, and at the awesome prices that cars are at today, and already a flat tire uh, just because of a pothole. No, I feel your pain. Um, I've really enjoyed that conversation. I think we've covered a lot of points. Before we close up, there's just one question that I ask everyone. But if you could give one piece of advice to anyone looking to work in the data center sector, what would it be? I guess my piece of advice is don't feel like, you know, I think the data center industry is one of the best industries because they they appreciate people's attitude and they're kind of drive and they will teach the skills that are needed. So if you have a great attitude and you're interested in it, apply for it and get the training that you need to get done. Don't feel like you had to be a mechie or double E or you had to learn electrician and mechanical. You can teach that stuff. But if you have that attitude and you're interested in it, get out there and, you know, kind of get your feet wet in it and try it out and see if you like it. Um, I think that's the biggest thing. I think people are just afraid because, you know, there's their data centers don't require a lot of technicians. So they don't have a lot of thing. They think it's cool though, but you know, get out there. The data center industry recognizes people with the great attitudes and bring them in. And I think we are starting to get a little bit better about training them too. So, I mean, it's embrace it and, and get in there. Don't be afraid that you don't have the background or, or, you know, kind of the, the, the training or schooling for it. No, great advice. And like we were saying before we come online, it's really important that we, you know, we get these people in and if they've got the right attitude, the right aptitude, then we really should be encouraging them into the sector rather than building up walls to scare them away. Exactly, exactly. 100% agree. Thanks, Tony. I've loved that conversation. I think we've uh, solved a few, busted a few myths today. Everyone knows what Edge is now. It's it's kind of what you interpret it to be. It's everything. <laughs> I didn't make it easier. It's just one encompassing definition for uh, it. Exactly. Um, I'm sure you're happy if anyone's got any questions or anything like that to reach out to you directly. Yeah, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. Reach out to me on email. My emails are on LinkedIn. Happy to have these kind of discussions. And I think if we have... The only way we're going to solve all these problems is working together at it. So this is not meant to be, you know, I have all this cool IP because you can, I mean, it's, it's a data center. Like I said, it's four, it's four walls and a ceiling. So it's, uh, it's, I think we, but I do think we need to work together to solve some of these problems, including sustainability. No, I totally agree. And thanks for your time today. And, and obviously we'll catch up again soon. Okay. Thanks, Andy.